Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. dedicated to Henry Farmer. In the year of the primal form, the dawn of terrestrial birth, man mastered the mammoth and horse, and man was the lord of the earth. He made him an old skin from the heart of a lonely tree. He compassed the earth therein. Formulas fatal to the flesh, my friends. Isn't that what Trey calls that Morbid Angel album as a reference to the well, was it the ideas, the lifestyle, I'm not really too sure, um, of David Vincent, that they were formulas fatal to the flesh? I think so, if I, my memory serves. What is today's episode about? Episode 157. Today's episode is a kind of, it's a multitude of things, but basically it's about, well, some of you will probably have noticed um, the YouTube footage of Troy Azathoth from Morbid Angel collapsing on stage. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about the fact that it doesn't matter who you are, what, well, let's just say, let's keep it to music, what band you're in, whatever. If you have an off night, an odd night, maybe you succumb to, well, we're going to get into that on the stage, that there is no escape anymore, that literally every single moment that you're living um, or standing on a stage, someone somewhere is filming. So I'm going to discuss that in the context of... Um, being the band guy, as in for somebody like Trey, thought it's 40 years, what touring does to you, it takes its toll on you physically, emotionally, um, and also on your insides if you're busy hitting it hard. We can't all be Lemmy, and even he succumbed to it in the end. Um, just about that, when is it time to maybe reach out for sobriety, and when is the party over? That kind of thing. Episode 157, Agitators Anonymous, is brought to you by our sponsors, Metal Blade Records. You can go to IndieMerch.com slash Metal Blade, and you can use the promo code AA2023, and you'll get 10% off your order. Now, if you listened to last Tuesday's podcast, the one just a couple of days ago, um, with the exciting and um, riveting, gripping narrative that was postage and packaging uh, and how it's killing the underground, um, amongst other things. But basically the cost of living crisis and how it's beginning to creep into and impinge upon the underground and small labels and vinyl pressings and all that kind of stuff. Go and listen to it. Um, but anyway, if not, um, well, you know, that order 
uh, that 10% off your order could save you a lot of money because obviously you'll want to buy all those back primordial vinyls. You'll want to get a Merciful Fate or a Cannibal Corpse on the way out, human liver for my dinner, etc. All that kind of thing, etc. Um, apologies. And if you also want a backdrop, if you've watched some of my, um, you know, generally nonsensical YouTube videos, um, or me and Joe from Gamma Bomb just drinking, talking nonsense about heavy metal, uh, go on over to YouTube and go and look at Alan Averill and you will find my channel. It's got lots of primordial stuff up there as well. But the backdrops that you see of which I've used to make my makeshift studio are um, the kind of um, fireproofed backdrops that have eyelets that you can hang at festivals, bars, all that kind of thing. If you're in a band and you're out there thinking, I need a backdrop... Um, DM me and I can put you in touch and you will get um, a discount. Right then. So like I said, the first things first is that um, it's almost impossible to live in a discreet way. I remember talking to Dave Mustaine from Megadeth. I did an interview with him quite a while ago. I think it was for the album Super Collider. And he, because I was from Ireland, he kind of zoned in on this um, I probably talked about it in the podcast before, maybe, maybe not. But in Antrim in 1988, Megadeth played two shows in Ireland in 1988 um, with Sanctuary. And Dave, this was in, I think, really um, druggy, drinky Dave. And Dave went outside, as the story goes, in Antrim in Northern Ireland to ask, who the hell are you, the people that are out bootlegging the shirts in the, the laneway to the side, and they were connected to the IRA, connected to paramilitaries, and they filled him in, and halfway through the gig, he went, he said something along the lines of, give Irish back to, um, give Ireland back to the Irish, and caused a full-scale riot, whereupon he was extracted from the venue and sent to the nearest airport. This is the mythology. Um, and I've talked to people who are at the show, and they say, yeah, it was absolute chaos. Um, because don't forget, uh, every, any metal show in the north that happened uh, back in the day would have had sometimes a half and half crowd and everybody knew who everybody was and from which side of that fence they were, um, Catholic and Protestant. And um, Dave, he, it was a cool interview, it was very insightful, but one of the things he said to me was, no one ever filmed it. There was, uh, As far as I know, there's no video footage of this event. Now, can you imagine something like that happening now, that... Um, because for sure there must have been Megadeth meltdown shows when the three quarters of the band were taking heroin or all of them were on heroin in the, like around the Svarsigut So What phase. There must have been meltdown shows playing speed metal with precision and taking heroin taking um, or taking opiates. I mean, there has to be, but there wasn't, there isn't any that I can find. There's a few onstage rambles between songs that go on too long about politics and having a dig at Metallica. But there's precious few. You can go back through in time and you can find, there's a famous one of Keith Moon from The Who, who has a meltdown. I think he took quaaludes or something, um, you know, which is in the Wolf of Wall Street, these these drugs that existed in the 70s and the 80s. Um, and he has a meltdown after five songs and the band have to stop and they drag him off stage, which is a little bit reminiscent of what happened to Trey um, the other night um, in Morbid Angel. If you watch the footage, he like twists and contorts and falls over. He's also doing a lot of gurning um, and the security have to grab him. But he doesn't fall to the ground. He's still sort of protesting as if um, I can stay on my feet, etc. But if you watch the Keith Moon footage, he's just over and out and they have to drag him off the stage. And um, Now, before we go any really further, I must say that um, in my observations of the whole Trey situation, I'm not saying definitively that I know anything behind the scenes stuff that he took this or took that. They're just observations. Um, and of course, Trey is an absolute fucking legend and it's kind of sad to see uh, the way things unfolded. But 
But the podcast is really just about how um, we're constantly surveilled, constantly being filmed, and having a moment like this is never private or belongs to just between the walls of that particular venue anymore. Everyone gets to see it almost instantaneously. It could happen to me, could happen to you. And the podcast is also just kind of about onstage meltdowns and when can the party be over, or it's about all sorts of the things that happen to you from years and years of touring. Um, and I'm certainly going to talk about my own shortcomings on that on that front and also the times it's happened to me. So, with that in mind, I do certainly wish Trey well and return to proper health and give us a kick-ass Mobile Angel album. But anyway, back to The Who, back to The Who. Pete Townsend goes, can anybody play the drums to the crowd? And this kid gets out of the crowd in front of a stadium and plays another six or seven or eight songs with The Who. It's quite incredible. But it all, what it also points to is that all the rock mythology, the punk rock mythology, the metal mythology, um, back in the day, there must have been Iggy Pop shows like this that descended into chaos after 15, 20 minutes. There must have been Strangler shows. There must have been Bowie shows where he was too coked out of his head to sing properly. There has to have been. It's just there wasn't, you know, 30 people with video or with camera phones in the front filming it. So, unfortunately, if you're going to have a kind of mini meltdown, and if you've ever watched the Trey DUI, the Drinking Under the Influence video of Florida Man, um, the signs have been there for ages um, that something was, uh, how shall we say, in the post. And true enough, in this footage, you know, if you've been following, I'm, I mean, I'm always very curious to watch these old death metal bands, how they're doing now. I spend, I watch a lot of um, new live shows by old bands, you know, how is Deicide doing? How is Cannibal doing? I mean, look, Cannibal kills it. Cannibal is in fighting fit health and almost all of the time. Um, obituary, the same obituary still are just a fucking awesome live. But the signs were there. There was a few shows that I watched on the Morbid Angel tour with Watain in the USA, where Trey's playing was sloppy and a bit messy. Um, and, you know, some of us have probably seen the interview um, that he did, I think, in New York, where he's out in the street uh, talking to this guy. And he has Kill AOC written in marker on his arm, which is just absolutely bizarre. And he clearly seems kind of out of it. It it, it strikes me, knowing what I know now um, of uh, people dealing with um, opioids, opioid addiction. It's just, a you know, um, an observation on, be- on my behalf. I don't know anything for sure. Don't know anything about it. And also, I'm not, I'm not judging Trey or gossiping about Trey. He's a fucking legend, you know, Morbid Angel since 1984. And it's just a bit sad to see. But he asks the guy, yeah, you should film this for an interview. And it's like, whoa. And it got shared. At least six, seven, eight people shared it to me going, whoa, you see this? Something's in the post. Um, it looks pretty rough because it looked like a mixture of opioid opioids, which Trey was talking about. He was taken for back pain. Now, this happened to a family member of mine who got addicted to opioids um, as a cheap alternative to a very expensive and costly back surgery. And that's the narrative of the last 10 years of the opioid crisis. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, that this sort of um, health care as a human right in the USA doesn't really fly because you have huge lobbying on behalf of Big Pharma to make that not happen. You remember Big Pharma, your, your saviors and the saviors of lockdown. You know, well, we won't we won't go there. I haven't gone away, you know, but. It looks like opioids mixed with booze. And it's ironic that um, Trey's hero, Eddie Van Halen, kind of succumbed to the same thing. There was Van Halen shows in the 2000s, I think, that were a complete mess. I once saw, actually, Michael Schenker um, uh, play an incredibly awful show. He was obviously out of his mind, and he was trying to play Doctor Doctor and stuff, and it was just a complete mess. And it was... 
it's it's hard to see legends or your kind of your heroes or people you grew up with their posters on your wall. Which of of Triassic Thoth and Michael Schenker were? I didn't have posters of Eddie Van Halen. I'm not really a big Van Halen guy, but you got to respect what he did. But I certainly had um, UFO posters on my wall as a kid. Same thing. Once I met Pete Way, and he was on an absolute other planet. Um, I'm probably sure I've told this story on the podcast before maybe i have maybe i haven't i was djing after a ufo show no when i was a kid when i was nine or ten ufo was my favorite band just before iron maiden and judas priest really you know took over my world nine or ten my uncle gave me strangers in the night the classic ufo live album and i mean it's absolute classic and it was the first time i think ufo had ever played in ireland it was about 2000 and um let me think 2003 or four and i got to dj afterwards and i brought in all my ufo records and i had them I, this is, you know, I can tell this story. It's not really defaming the dead, so to speak. Um, but UFO played, and I saw Pete Way make his way past the DJ booth, um, and I was like, still in his stage clothes, wearing a fur coat. Of course, he's wearing a fur coat, and he had bouncer, um, a, a bouncer in tow, and a very small Asian woman in tow. Um, I don't know what that particularly means, but that's what who were with him and. I went up to him with my records and I said, oh, you know, I, I was babbling. I was babbling. I'd had a few whiskeys. And I was like, oh, I was the biggest UFO fan when I was a kid. And he looked at me and it was like, oh, he was completely goofing off. Um, and now if you're from a working class area of England or Ireland, you'll know what I mean by goofing off. He was nodding off. He was he was heading for the, um, well, what would be now called the Fentanyl Hills or whatever. Um, he'd obviously, well... Uh, who knows? But he was goofing off. He was nodding off. And they were, he was literally being helped to the hotel. And he looked at me and I said, oh, my uncle got me into UFO. And he's when you tell your fucking uncle, he's a fucking legend. And he grabbed me to hold on to me, to hug me. And his wet hair was in my face. And he was just holding on to me. And then he, no joke, started to nod off on my shoulder. And the bouncer was like, oi, oi. And I, so I said, oh, can you sign my records? And he grabbed my pen, like, as if it was a, a, you know, kind of like a stick that you were poking in a drain. Um, if you do that often, I don't know. Um, and he scribbled his name, he scribbled his name a couple of times. And we were all standing, waiting, watching, all looking at each other. And then he just grabbed me again. He said, you tell you fucking uncle. And the bouncer had to come and take his hands off my shoulder and walk him away. And I was like, fucking hell. Holy shit, don't meet your heroes. Um... I mean, Pete Way was without a doubt one of my heroes, along with a certain Steve Harris, um, was a hero of his as well. But it's hard, I think, being the band guy for decades and decades and decades to be able to turn off the party when you go home. There are some people for whom the party just doesn't stop. They just keep going. Now, I don't know exactly what um, Trey's problem is. It could be as simple as this, that he hurt his back and he became addicted to opioids like hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. I mean, opioids are the biggest killer in um they're the biggest killer in the usa every year um and it looked to me you know there's a lot of gurning going on a lot of sort of mdma gurning going on i mean that's what it looked like looks like you know they're kind of blowing out of the cheeks and stuff and it's terribly sad to see but we can't all be lemmy and lemmy always said that he always said you know if you watch back interviews he said don't take cocaine and don't take heroin heroin will kill you cocaine will make you an asshole just take speed and drink whiskey but I'm brought to mind of my conversation actually on the podcast maybe a year and a half ago with Adi from Solstavir. It was during lockdown. Um, and who's a big proponent, a big, um, he's a big champion of sobriety. Now, we, me and him did a tour together 10, 11, 12 years ago, which certainly was not sobriety. It was the a- a- absolute opposite of sobriety. And he came home and he just went, enough is enough. Time out. 
Um, I'm not into this anymore. And it beggars the question when I was watching the tray footage, I was going, when is when is enough enough? When Are you able to call time on all of this behaviour? Some people are, some people aren't. It reminded me a little bit of uh, Stephen Piercy from Rat did a show where he was clearly out of his mind on the strength of opioids mixed with whatever else and he could barely sing. It's like New York um, from about six or seven years ago. And he, thankfully, he's fighting fit now and sounds great. Um Big fan of some of those early rat records, but it seems like the opioid thing just kind of gets its hooks into people. And you're, you know, especially for people who aren't able to, as I said in America, afford, 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 afford um, the operations that maybe they're needing to, or else maybe it's just other things they're coping with, um, you know, depression or something like this. Because some of the medications that you're being, that are being foisted on you, that have been lobbied through um, doctors and consultants in order to, um, you know, by big pharma. Some of them are pretty nasty, pretty evil stuff, to say the least. But is it possible to rock and roll without the rock and roll? Um, it's a very complicated question. I suppose we all enjoy artists who've kind of bound, rebounded back. Take somebody like Alice Cooper or something like that. He got um, was terribly indulgent in the 70s and I think in the 80s and then bounced back. And we still have him today singing well and doing great shows. But there is a certain element of when you watch somebody interviews with people like Johnny Thunders and all that kind of thing. And, uh, you, you know, the New York Dolls and stuff. I mean, they were living out this kind of romantic idea of a heroin-soaked, booze-soaked rock and roll dream. And it's it sort of, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy in the sense that it is almost tragicomic by its very nature. But yet it's, the intent is to just absolutely indulge until death actually there's a sort sort of romantic nihilism about it um and now i didn't i don't feel that when i watch the tray footage because the it, the the romantic nihilism of being of indulging in rock and roll until right to the you know the precipice i mean you've got to die young and leave a beautiful corpse don't you i think that's part of um that's part of the romance of the mythology about it it's a bit more difficult when you're 60 or 70 and of which Trey is almost 60, that you're still kind of doing the same thing. A friend of mine told me, um, the very uh, wonderful Chris Coleslaw Fielding from um, Conan, who just has been, uh, who has recorded some primordial albums, he told me he saw Ace Freely at Psycho Las Vegas, and he was just all over the place, absolutely all over the place. And a part of him was like, wow, this is incredibly entertaining. I saw um, Lita Ford do a show like that, a show Michael Schenker do a show like that, as I said. A complete mess. Um, and there is something deeply satisfying about watching an awful show, um, a, a show fall apart, which, if you've been listening to the podcast, something similar happened to me only a few weeks ago. Now, that was a technological collapse. That was um, everything that can go wrong with all the leads and pedals and amps and all that kind of stuff. That's a different kind of collapse to actually um, collapsing on stage, um, which is something, there's something far more, far darker about that. But... But it's certainly hard if you've been the band guy for 30, 40 years. Now, if you've been lucky enough to be a band um, guy, um, I use that term sort of broadly, but if you've been playing in a band for 30, 40, 50 years and you made your money and you bought your house and you have your mortgage paid and all that kind of stuff, and you're, you don't really have the day-to-day -day costs of starting a band now would have. Um, maybe you were lucky enough to buy your house with you know through playing music back in the day and you have less worries, which means... Even myself as a musician, I know other musicians who, when, you know, on that Monday when you fly home after the tour, um, the temptation is to just keep drinking. The temptation is to get up the next morning, chop yourself out of line, 
um, and just go, well, you know, I made my money. That'll pay the rent for the next four, five, six months. Let's just draw the curtains and get stuck in uh, to the rock and roll lifestyle. And there is something sort of addictively dangerous about the, the, that romantic myth. Can you still make rock and roll without the rock and roll? That is a very, very big question. I would wager that your rock and roll has to change. It has to alter. Um, it has to adapt and grow up and you have to kind of set your sights a little bit differently. Is, is Morbid Angel rock and roll? Have they, have they ascribed to this rock and roll behavior? It's certainly not um, sexy or dangerous. Or Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Romantic or whatever you want to call it like that. It's not out of control. I remember watching Deicide somewhere about 20 years ago, maybe 99, and they were all drinking whiskey and they were obviously all being indulging in a few a bit of uh, the old Peruvian marching powder when it looked like it. And they were menacing on stage with the two Hoffmans. There was a, a, a real um, aggressive tone to what was going on. It was so... They were intimidating. And it was fueled by whiskey. And it was fueled by, well, that looks what it looked like to me. Now, you can maybe only do that as a young man. A young deicide could only really do that. I'm not sure that deicide now, um, Glenn Benton at 55, 56, 57, can do that. Because it takes its toll on your body. And you look at Trey, it looks like it's taken its toll on his body. It looks like he's just been at home doing the same thing and then goes out and tour. And the problem is, of course, that you can't do this if you play technical music. I mean, you could be the, um, you know, the, uh, the androgynous Iggy Pop and be, you know, drugged out of your mind in 1974 and leap off the stage and start a huge fight and miss a few verses of singing and people will call the gig legendary or they'll read about it and go, oh, the legendary gig at such and such or 
when maybe Bowie did the oh, well Bowie never quite did the same thing but I'm sure there were gigs where Bowie was I mean you can watch TV interviews with Bowie's from the said Bowie from the 70 and eight, 70s and 80s and he's he's on another planet um but maybe Iggy Pop does that I still think you could probably be that guy now um I'm not sure who the equivalent would be probably it would have to be a grime guy or a rapper or something to do, you know, a hip hop kind of, um, you know, kind of loose cannon out of control guy who's embracing this sort of dangerous vibe uh, that an Axl Rose had back in the day. Watch that YouTube footage of Axl Rose leaping into the crowd to more or less take on an entire fucking stadium or Sebastian back. That's when rock and roll was kind of dangerous in the 70s and 80s. Um, you can probably get away with being the Lane Staley or whatever. But don't forget, he also died a rather tragic and grim death. Um, you know, it's hard to romanticize that. I watched a few documentaries about his life. Um, I'm not really interested in music, but um, I watched a few documentaries about his life and it seemed absolutely tragic and grim and sad. Um, and an awful lot of people from that Seattle scene uh, maybe should have um, adhered to the, uh, I suppose, the, advice, the Lemmy advice. However, the problem is that, especially for something like death metal, the music is so technical um, there isn't really any wiggle room to be addicted to opioids or to be boozing or to be whatever. It's you can't do that. I mean, I remember once <laughs> this is going to sound funny, but um, I remember once being in uh, Brussels in the rock bar in Dublin. And it was when they put the Phil in it statue outside. Um, and it was a big deal in the world. Bands playing everywhere. And I met this dude in the bar. Um, this big tall dude with fluffy blonde hair wearing a white singlet and blue jeans. And we started talking and he had an American accent. And we started having a chat and having a few drinks and this, that, and the other. And then a few mates came in and sat down in the back of the pub and I said, oh, who are you hanging out with? He's like, well, no one. I said, oh, you want to come and hang out with us? And I brought him down to hang out with my mates. And he sat down and my mate was like, what the fuck are you doing with Stephen Adler? I was like, oh, oh fuck, Stephen Adler. <laughs> I hadn't really realized. I hadn't, but the penny hadn't dropped. It was just, I, I don't, I'm not a huge Guns N' Roses fan. So, of course, all my mates were like, what the fuck, it's Stephen Adler. He was lovely. He was very nice. But... There's an example of a dude who has to, he's got to keep the beat. I mean, he's got to keep that Guns N' Roses engine room running. And you can't be the heroin guy and be the keeping the beat guy. Just when you, similar to when you watch Morbid Angel, um, for example, that's why so many death metal and black metal bands who play at lightning speed have to replace the drummer every couple of years it's like replacing uh, the belt in the engine of your car or something it just wears you out i know drummers who played for super fast bands who basically just got bulging discs and hernias and back problems and you know all that kind of thing that's well kind of what happened to pete sandoval i think as well but you can't play technical stuff and be um out of your mind it, my limited bit playing ability um with dread sovereign or with vermin a serpent i know that if i'm um, if I have that one beer more than I should, I remember playing at Muscle Rock with Dread Sovereign and me and Johnny, the drummer, the drummer of Conan as well. We got stuck in tons of airports and um, we had a few beers, but maybe I had one too many. And the gig, um, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit better at playing than I was then. Still awful, you know, still a solid three out of four out of ten at the best. But just the hand, the hand coordination goes and then you have to sing as well. So these, this complicated Morbid Angel stuff. And in, in discussing this album, I went back and listened to The Last Morbid Angel. And I kind of enjoyed it more than I did at the time. It's very dense, very dark, very complex. Um, I just kind of wish the sound, it sounded like it was mixed remotely or something like this. There's no, I don't hear the bass and the two guitar tones aren't very different and the drums are quite overbearing. It sounds like if if you sent it to someone um, 
to 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 remix it there there could be a kind of wider broader album with more dynamics and tone it's something i talk about all the time on the podcast i know that people are sick of hearing me talk about dynamics and tone but there is an impenetrable record in there and it's it's quite interesting and challenging and sort of daring i suppose to be quite so dark and not just rely on some riffs that you maybe heard in the 80s but goddamn trying to play that stuff and being a bit buzzed or um, you know, the the cocaine confidence that you think you're doing all right and you're not and that it's an absolute mess. Because I've been there, done that and worn the T-shirt. And um, I probably talked about it again on the podcast, but there was there was a, there's one gig which goes down in a sort of infamy in our primordial history. You might have been there. It was when um, it was maybe in Finland, 2010 or 2011. Now, um, when primordial got a little bit bigger, maybe 2005 or 6 from 2005 or 6 to about 2010 or 11 maybe a bit before that as well but I certainly embraced elements of the whole rock and roll thing threw my hat in the ring so to speak um, drank more than I should it was like yeah I'm, I'm, I'm a whiskey drinking you know a man a hard living dude a rock and roll whatever you just it appeals to a certain element of the impetuosity of youth um, there's a certain sort of, you know, I, I'd hate the phrase, but a certain toxic masculinity that grabs hold of it and goes, we can ride, we can grab the bull by the horns and ride it. And um, certainly this gig is where it all kind of unwound and I had to reassess what I was doing because it's one thing, as I said, being in a rock and roll band, being Iggy Pop, singing three or four minute rock and roll songs. But with Primordial, of course, you're singing The Coffin Ships. You're singing these dark, sort of windswept, introspective, long, melancholic songs. And so if you're going to be the whiskey guy on stage, it just doesn't really work. But we played with Absu. We played a long, um, it was maybe 2011, a long, long gig, two, two hour and a half maybe. And the drum roadie just put an empty bottle of Jim Beam and like I said, don't waste nice things on me. I like awful stuff. I don't like nice whiskey. I like Jim Beam. Um, and I swear I drank almost the entire bottle in about three or four gulps. In about 10, 15 minutes, it was gone. And then, um, you know, it's a gig is packed and, uh, you know, it's we're about two an hours and ten. We're getting into the last couple of songs and this, these two dudes are giving me the finger in the front, which apparently was like, yeah, we, you know... Uh, we think what you're doing is great and I jumped into the crowd to fucking hit somebody and fight people and I just ended up staying in the crowd I had a wireless mic somebody given to me which was a ridiculous idea and then the whole night then just uh, you know I woke up in the morning um, the room was like a bomb site and um, I had all these texts and messages from all my Finnish friends, basically like, you're an asshole, you're a fucking dickhead, you're this, you're that, you're the other. And then it just like all flooded back and I was like, oh, I'd been fighting with bouncers outside nightclubs. I'd gotten an argument with this some other band um, just pissed everyone off, including my own band. And I come down the stairs um, and Kieran from Pomodoro looked at me and he goes, if you ever do that again, that's the end of the band. Um, he goes, you're not you're not fucking, um, you know, Mr. Rock and Roll. You're singing the coffin ships. Have some respect to the subject matter. And it just, like, hit me like crack. Like, um, and that was the last time I really got fucked, fucked up. Um, it literally, I still have a drink of whiskey, etc. every now and again, but I literally just stopped. It just, I just knocked it on the head. I mean, we did a tour with Fintroll, I think, in 2010 or 9. And me and um, the very awesome Samuel from Fintroll took to, like, um, sinking an entire bottle between us every day then we'd start another one then we'd drink gins and then we'd whatever and that was literally every day um, 
And what happened is I just dis- decided, okay, what are you going to do? You're, you you know, the songs are hard enough to sing. You're going to have to accept respons- some responsibility. And I developed a taste for wine and I just stopped drinking heavy booze. And all of a sudden when I started drinking red wine, um, you know, and just enjoying that feeling, let's just say it made me a little bit nicer and easier to deal with. Um, I could still have my rock and roll. I could still have my wheel out my rock and roll, but I wasn't going on stage going, fuck it, I'm going to drink an entire fucking bottle of whiskey. I remember doing it at Hammer of Doom, drinking an entire bottle, probably while we played. And the gig was fine. But you just about scrape by and the skin of your teeth if it's 60 minutes long. Um, try doing that for two and a half hours under heavy lights. And yeah, you're going to be, you're going to be, um, you're going to be a hot mess, as we say. And Trey was certainly a hot mess watching that video. And you wish him all the best, but you have to wonder, there's a difference between rock and roll and then there's a difference between dependency. I think for me, rock and roll and the rock and roll antics were always kind of kept to being on tour and festivals generally because, you know, you wanted to have some fun. I mean, it was I liked all the trappings of rock and roll excess because it was fun. And um, I didn't do it to escape. I didn't do it out of some sort of um, coping with some inner depression demon or whatever. It was I just, you know, it was a good time. And that's probably what rock and roll is theoretically supposed to be like. It's not necessarily supposed to be dark and grim and um, but it certainly is very very hard to try and play music so technically complicated um and be a hot mess i mean as promoting as a singer i could probably still go on some kind of um lizard brain autopilot and sing those songs but I, certainly i'd go oh i'm singing great and somebody would come up and go what the fuck are you doing you sang the second verse first and the first verse again i can do that sober that's no problem that's just called having written 130 odd songs that have been, and having lots of lyrics in your brain going huh? and mixing them up and also never rehearsing but that's something else entirely but I don't think that for example Morbid Angel is the kind of band where people want to see a hot mess um, I could kind of like so they don't, it's not it doesn't add anything I remember going to see Shane McGowan once about 20 let me think 19, 2005 and this is when Shane could still stand, stand and sing and he was drinking pints of gin and you know people loved the fact that he was Shane McGowan, but look at him now. He cuts a really, really tragic figure. I mean, he's he's can barely speak. He's just in a wheelchair. And you think to yourself, how much of that was? I mean, by all accounts, Shane's reading accounts of his interviews and looking back. I mean, there was a sort of punk nihilism to Shane's attitude, and he was embracing. I think maybe in the end, with all due respect, a sort of cartoon Irishness, maybe judging from the outside in. I mean, look, if that's what he wanted to do, that's what he wanted to do. But being in your dotage now, your last 10 or 15 years, you're, you can only do that so long before your body starts to pack in. I mean, even Lemmy ended up with um, diabetes and that kind of thing. Um, literally from just drinking whiskey and Coke, I suppose, for all his life. But we cheered on from the sidelines as Shane stumbled around. And there were gigs where Shane was in a wheelchair and barely coherent. And people sort of loved it. But I wondered, do they follow him now and love the way that he's sort of living out the last five or 10 or 15 years of his life. It seems a bit sad, which is kind of why I say there's something romantic about following that Johnny Thunders model, that, you know, die young and leave a beautiful corpse idea. But one thing's for sure now, and that is that the way society is now, with everybody filming everything at all times, you just can't, you can't get away with um, a slip up with an indiscretion like that. You can't get away with that without everyone knowing, everybody sharing it. Because let's be honest, I would imagine that most people shared um, 
you know, the awful gig, the collapse gig, rather than sharing, hey, have you seen how fucking great they sound lately? That's the tragic thing, is it appeals to all of the worst senses of our human nature, um, which is that, you know, the kind of part of our human nature that slows down to look at car crashes, that gawks out the window at something um, brutal on the side of the road, because that's kind of what we're drawn to. Um, we always want to see people when they're at their lowest point. It's why I got, I said to a few people, um, you know, when they're sharing all the James Hetfield at his lowest point, I was like, well, why do we never share James the goat when he's like 1984, um, ripping the shit out of everything and, you know, all powerful ride the lightning kind of stuff. And I'm sure, um, let's say for argument's sake, if I get fucked up on this tour coming up at the end of your part is lost and I fall off the stage and collapse, um, you know, maybe I'm, I'm signing my own meme warrant here. And people will share that more than, oh, did you see how awesome they were the day before? That's just unfortunately the sort of world that we live in now where that is the thing, the first thing that people share. And it also says to you that, <clears throat> like I said, there's nowhere to hide anymore in that you can fuck up on stage and people around the world will know instantly because they've, they're you know either live streaming it or they're just posting it straight away to people. Whereas, it, like I said, if you think about it, all the famous legendary mythology shows, imagine... I was looking at a poster the other day and it was like the Queen, Finn Lizzie and ACDC. And I was thinking to myself, whoa, imagine Freddie Mercury, Philo and Bon Scott hanging out in the backstage shooting the shit. Wow. Imagine how incredible that would be. And then I was talking about it with my mate and he was saying, well, you know, I think Bon didn't Bon. Bon had a few drunken gigs with ACDC. He must have had a few um, ones that were pretty near the edge in 77, 78. And I thought about it and I went, he must have. These bands are touring behemoths <clears throat> and he's a heavy drinking man. Or was he just able to control it because he's young and his body's still able to cope with all that kind of thing? But it's for sure that the myths and the legends and the rock and roll legends that we know um, have had these shows in the 70s. But just everyone in the audience didn't have um, a smartphone, as I said. We're living in a weird age where the most private thing you can do is leave your phone at home and go and sit in a park and have a chat while sitting in a, an open space in front of tons of people. That's, bizarrely enough, the most private thing that you can do these days. But do we get that? What shall we call it? That road to Damascus moment, I suppose, that eureka. No, not wouldn't be your eureka moment, would it? No, that moment where you go, OK, enough's enough. I got to change um, my lifestyle. As Adi from Salsevere says to me, he goes, you've got to go from being a nighttime person to a morning person. As in, the things you do in the morning in you know, the kind of the fillet of the day, as we shall say, um, that has to be, they have to be enriching and rewarding and you have to line them up. You can't just wake up and go, I wonder what I'm going to do today. You have to literally map out what you're going to do during the day to leave you satisfied and tired in the evening and not be like looking forward always to whatever happens after midnight. Um, and some of us are just always drawn to that more instinctively. I've always been a kind of night owl of a person. And the idea of missing out on what happens between midnight and three or four a.m. Um, when you're on tour or when you're, you know, when you're at a weekend of festivals or gigs, it just, even if the airport bus call is at seven or eight a.m., there's a little devil on your shoulder going, ah, you might miss a little bit of rock and roll if you um, stay sober tonight and you don't hang out and you whatever. There's always that part of you that goes, how can we rock and roll without the rock and roll? And that's, that's the question.
and that's where the division must be because there is there's rock and roll the mischievous nature of rock and roll and then there's the kind of little flip of the coin over and you look at the flip side of it and there's a darkness to it there's dependency when the drugs change when they're not just weed and beer anymore and they're heroin or there's something darker um, and it moves into a whole like a, a shadow falls upon it like I said I meant you we mentioned Chris Cornell or Lane Staley or Kurt Cobain or whatever and that shadow tends to be heroin and well if um, you know if pharma didn't synthesize a um, you know a version of that it's called fentanyl you've probably watched YouTube documentaries about fentanyl um, just literally devastating entire cities and by all accounts it's two times five times ten times a hundred times stronger than heroin I only watched a documentary the other day, um, a short one about some rather grim seaside town in the UK and a bunch of kids who were hanging out doing, um, they were doing all the mail order drugs. And there was one guy who was like the, the pharmacist of the group. And there were all those videos of them all out of their mind, taking ketamine and taking whatever else and taking all these new designer drugs. And the one guy just... The tragic um, romanticism of it, I suppose, in that the one guy who thought he could beat heroin, he was the first of the gang to die. The first of the gang to die. Well, my friends, that is Friday's Agitators Anonymous. It ends with a Morrissey quote. Um, and why not? It's just a little ramble through, a ramble across the subjects of when is enough enough? When do we decide to embrace sobriety? Um, and after several decades of morbid angel we wish trey well and we're all pulling for a killer morbid angel album maybe in a couple of years why not why not i mean look of course i would have my favorite morbid angels and it's no surprise they're uh you know in the 80s and the 90s but it's tragic to see um you know people falling off their throne collapsing in this way whatever you want to say the fall from grace there you go that's how we'll put it my friends agitators anonymous over and out acast powers the world's best podcasts here's a show that we recommend the real housewives is a guilty pleasure for most but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure tune in to everything iconic with me danny pellegrino where i break down all the messy moments and behind the scenes antics of bravo's popular franchise and on everything iconic i also interview celebrity guests like kelly ripa kiki palmer drew barrymore cameron diaz and more about their guilty pleasures their past work and so much more so if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality tv like me tune in to everything iconic with danny pellegrino wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.